All right, Second Timothy this evening. We are pressing on in the pastoral epistles, and uh, it seems like it's been a while. It's only been a week since we've been here. Uh, we skipped a week, so it's actually been, I guess, two Sundays, but it seems like uh, it's been lot, much longer than that since we've been here. I'd like to give a special welcome to the Varbergs who are here this evening. I didn't see you guys slip in, so welcome. It's Paul and Margie. Right, yep. Paul and Margie Varberg are missionaries to the Philippines, and uh, this is their final week here in the States. They've been home for a, a year. That's hard to believe. That's really hard to believe, because I met them probably three or four weeks after you guys got home. And now, look, all this time has passed by. Uh, Many of us have picked up some weight, and here you are, you're ready to head back, just like that. So it's been a year of uh, ministering here, resting, quote-unquote, resting. Uh, Paul's been preaching all over the country, running all over the place, and uh, we're excited about their opportunity to go back to the Philippines and uh, minister there. It'll be another four years, and then you come back for another year. So four years. And uh, we need to be praying for the Varbergs, and we're going to do that at the end of our service, and uh, just pray that God would use them to be faithful to his word and to his gospel, and continue to use them to bring sinners to salvation. And God has done an amazing work there, and we're excited for the continuation of that. And so if you think of it after the service, be sure to greet them and let them know that you'll be praying for them, and then go ahead and pray for them. If you let them know that, uh, you need to be praying for them and upholding them before the Lord as they head back into the Philippines. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2 this evening. Uh, for the sake of Charles Booker. Charles, are you here? Yeah, there you are. We're here, man. We've made it to this passage. Charles has been waiting for this particular passage. We're going to be in verses 8 through 13 tonight of 2 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, he has had questions about that final section. And he came to me a couple weeks ago and he said, Would you let me know? when we're going to be in this section, I'd like to know ahead of time. So uh, I didn't let him know ahead of time, so this is as much notice as you get, Charles. This is it. We're going to be there in a couple of minutes, so you need to stay focused. And uh, if you don't get your answer tonight, i got nothing else to offer you, man. This is it. So I'm going to pour it all out for you, give you everything I've got. All right, most of us, uh, I would think, by way of introduction, most of us have had somebody that we looked to who was in power or in influential situation that we we thought to ourselves, I would really appreciate knowing what kind of makes that person tick, what keeps them going in the direction that they're going. And growing up in my particular circumstances and in my life situation, it was athletes who I wanted to know more about. And I couldn't. There was no way I was going to get close and be a personal friend to Michael Jordan. We just weren't going to meet each other. Our paths were not going to cross. And I wanted to know what he thought, what he did, what his daily activities were like, because I wanted to pattern myself after him. And I can tell you, personal testimony, I failed miserably at patterning my life after his, especially on the hardwood. I don't think I want to pattern my life after his in a lot of other ways. But I wanted to know what he was thinking, what was driving him, what he gave his priorities to, what he put his emphasis on, what motivated this guy to make him what he was. And there were other people like that. I've always been curious about those that have... Uh, in a temporal sense and in a human sense, come to a lot of influence? What were their priorities? What were they thinking about? What drove them? Particularly early on, before they had their influence, who were these people? What kind of drive was pushing them forward? In fact, I remember growing up with athletics at the center of my life, and I loved a particular 
uh, television show, which uh, is a key component of every godly family. It's called Sports Center. See, Sports Center. It's on ESPN, and it tells you everything you need to know about sports. And on Sunday night, Sports Center always has the Sunday conversation, and it is an interview with a particular athlete just to get to know that person, ask them what. Am I right, Cam? Do you know what I'm talking about? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. There are maybe two or three that know about Sunday conversation, but as a kid, that meant Monday morning when I got up to ice my ankles and do all the ritual that I did in high school, I watched Sunday conversation, and there was nothing more exciting to me than finding out that Michael Jordan was a part of Sunday conversation because they were going to ask him questions uh, about practical things that he was doing. And I got to listen to him, and I got to hear him, and he would kind of give a little peek into his life and what he thought and what drove him and what made him keep going with his unbelievable discipline in athletics. It was the highlight, and still to this day, if I can catch a Sunday conversation, I don't really care who it is, I like to watch those and listen to these people talk about their lives. Tonight, in this particular portion, Paul's going to come back to informing Timothy or giving Timothy a little sneak peek into what drives him, what motivates him, what keeps him going. And no doubt, people in this time period who were familiar with the ministry of the Apostle Paul, this uh, Pharisee of Pharisees, this Hebrew of Hebrews, who on the Damascus Road was blinded, was changed by the gospel, became a preacher of the gospel that he persecuted, uh, people who were aware of his story, how many times he had been beaten and shipwrecked and imprisoned. He was stoned. He was, uh, had attempted uh, murder against him more times than we could count. And he recounts those things for us in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Surely there were people in this time period who thought, what in the world makes that guy keep going? This guy is like the Energizer Bunny. He cannot stop. He just keeps going and going and going. And no matter what happens to him, he presses on and he doesn't change the message and he keeps preaching and he keeps loving the lost and he keeps bringing the gospel. And in a human sense, if they were in, in some familiarity with the Apostle Paul, surely people of his time said, this man continues to live for the very thing that has caused him more grief than anything else in his life, right? Ever since Damascus Road, and he starts saying he's a Christian and that he's an apostle of Christ, his life has gone to shambles. I mean, whatever fame he was coming to as a Pharisee, whatever rank he was raising, rising up to as a Pharisee and as a religious leader, it all was dashed upon the rocks, and then his life just fell apart from there in a human sense. This man was, for all intent and purposes, homeless, he traveled around living on other people's uh, handouts to him, in a temporal sense. He worked at making tents just to put food on the table when there wasn't someone to provide for his needs. He was beaten and imprisoned. He was tortured. And he continued on. And we know from the scriptures that he did continue on with joy. And so now the Apostle Paul in Second Timothy is at the very end of his life. He's been imprisoned again by Nero. This will be the last one. He'll die after this imprisonment, and he realizes that he'll never again uh, be able to minister in the way that he has. He does no ex- excuse me. He has no expectation of release or of going back and seeing Timothy, though he longs for that. Seeing the church at Ephesus, though he longs for that, as he loved God's people, 
he now is at the very end of his ministry. And he's calling on a young pastor who he placed in Ephesus to stand up, take the banner, and be faithful and endure, be faithful to the message of the truth. Timothy struggled. I mean, there's no doubt when we read these letters, Timothy struggled. He was mild-mannered. He was fearful of others. He was overwhelmed with the responsibility of confronting error in the church, all the while preaching boldly the truth. I mean, this was a tough task that Timothy had been given. It was an overwhelming responsibility to be the shepherd of Christ's flock, his sheep, to serve as an under-shepherd, to work with people who fell away, to work even with elders who were wolves in sheep's clothing. And so the question is begged of us, how was Timothy to take up the mantle of endurance? How was he to set himself? What thoughts should he be thinking? What priorities should he be meditating on? What should be his focus? And if it's a question for Timothy, then it has to be a question for us. Really, it does. Because this is our calling as well. This is my calling specifically in this particular capacity. And this is your calling as ministers of the gospel. As mouthpieces for the work of God through Christ. And so if we ask how it was Timothy to do this, it's an appropriate question for us to ask ourselves, how are you and I to press on in the ministry of the gospel with endurance and persistence no matter the human consequence? It's kind of a difficult question for us to ask because we don't really expect much human consequence for the gospel. So we have a little bit of a tough time bridging the context from this letter to our own time period. And yet it is the right question for us to ask. What was Paul's meditation? What was his focus? What set him on a course for success in the eyes of God, though man would have seen him as a total failure in this life? We're going to look at this section, verses 8 through 13, and I trust we'll see four stabilizing meditations of Paul's life. They were four stabilizing meditations or focuses, foci of his life that set him on a course for faithfulness and for endurance. So we'll be looking for four of these, and I trust they'll jump off the page at us as we study. Now, just in case you haven't been with us, we're building on the word pictures. You remember back in verses 1 through 7, if you studied this section with us, and you're probably familiar with it, Paul brought these word pictures, these illustrations, to help Timothy know what it was to be a faithful minister. So he outlined it for him by bringing in some movie clips and letting him see what a faithful minister looked like in a practical sense. Right? You remember those from the first section of chapter 2? A faithful minister looks like a good soldier, a good athlete, or a good farmer. So there's three word pictures that he used, all to describe the faithfulness of the ministry of the gospel. And that is that the hardworking, disciplined servant of Christ will, in fact, receive a reward in the end. That is faithfulness. That is success in ministry before God. And so now in verse 8, he kind of turns that corner just a little bit and moves from explaining what it is to be faithful to now helping Timothy see what it will take to be faithful. What What does Timothy need to have his mind centered on as he comes to this pursuit of faithfulness with the impending absence of the Apostle Paul, his mentor, who will soon die. 
right? So we're going to read verses 8 through 13, and then we'll come back to those four stabilizing meditations of the Apostle Paul's heart and mind. All right? Here we go in verse 8. You can read along with me. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. And if we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. Four stabilizing meditations of the Apostle Paul that gave him the endurance necessary to be faithful in his ministry. Okay, enduring, stabilizing rather, stabilizing meditation number one. Keep remembering the work of Christ. Keep remembering the work of Christ. In verse 8 he says, remember Jesus Christ as a continual practice. Be mindful, be thinking on, be remembering the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Be focused, be centered on this reality. No person who sets out to be a faithful minister for the gospel will succeed in that process exceed or succeed in that goal apart from a central attention to the person and the work of Christ in other words in our common lingo today the faithful minister is the Christ centered minister and Paul doesn't just leave it with this kind of vague statement of remember Jesus he actually describes what it is that he's talking about when he speaks of this remembrance of Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly enough, in the minutia details, in verse 8, this is the only time that Paul in these letters uses Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. Usually when Paul does something only once, he did it for a reason. So what is it that he's speaking of? Well, maybe in the context he's talking about the earthly life of Jesus, who is the Christ, rather than focusing first on the messianic purpose of Jesus of Nazareth. We don't know. But he says, remember Jesus, who is the Messiah. That's what Jesus Christ means. Okay, here's the details of what he encourages Timothy to be meditating upon. Who is Jesus? Jesus Christ is the one who is risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a passage for your meditation. If we're going to set ourselves to thinking rightly about Jesus Christ, He is the one who is alive, and that's critical for us, right? Because 1 Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians 15 rather says that if He's not alive, if He's not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain, folks. There's nothing to, to gain from Christianity. There is nothing to gain from following after Christ if He's dead. His resurrection is the basis of hope. And in this particular context, it is the very foundational basis for hope in the middle of trial and suffering for the gospel. So if we're going to meditate on the person of Christ, and we're suffering or facing the potential suffering for the sake of the gospel, we've got to be thinking first, this is the risen Christ. This is the risen Jesus. 
that I remember. He's alive. He's been raised from the dead. And the hope that is mine is mine because of his miraculous resurrection. Not only is he risen from the dead and providing life eternal for those who trust him, but he's also designated by Paul as the offspring of David. Now that's kind of silly to us. Maybe at the uh, initial reading we just think those two things are not equal in their detail. I mean, come on, he's risen from the dead and he's the lineage of David. Are those two things equally important for Timothy to be meditating upon for the sake of enduring in the face of suffering for the gospel? Well, absolutely, because in saying he's the offspring of David, he reminds Timothy that part of knowing the person of Jesus Christ is not just that he's the living, resurrected Messiah, but that he is the fulfillment of every promise that God made through the Old Testament to provide salvation for sinners. He's the offspring of David. When we read those kind of phrases, when we read that he's the seed of Abraham, those phrases ought to conjure up within us a confidence that God does what he says he's going to do. It gives us a stability, knowing that the promises of God will come to pass. He's the seed. He's the offspring of David. And he will, in the future, reign on the throne of David. This is the victorious ministry of the Messiah. He is risen, he provides life, and he will reign on the throne of his father David as the fulfillment of the promise of God to his people. Those are the two realities that Paul picks as the focus of Jesus Christ and remembering him or meditating on Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but those probably aren't the two that I think about the most. Those two realities, maybe we think about his deity, we think about his humanity, we focus on his substitutionary death, and surely those are to be meditations of our heart. But in the face of suffering, Paul, in the inspiration and movement of the Spirit of God, gives us these two qualities about Jesus that should sustain us. They should help us to endure. He's resurrected, and he's the offspring of David. So number one, we need to keep remembering the work of Christ. Paul kind of carries this theme over in remembering Christ, and he uses his own life as an example of that remembrance of Jesus Christ. He says at the end of verse 8, as preached in my gospel. This is one of those phrases from Paul where you're just kind of overwhelmed with how bold Paul is. Paul says, it's not just the gospel, this is my gospel. It is the good news that I have brought to you as an apostle, as a messenger from God himself, as a spokesman for Jesus. This has been the theme of my preaching of the good news. And it is the basis for which he is suffering. If we move into verse 9, this remembering of Jesus Christ in the preaching of the good news of salvation is the reason why Paul is suffering the way he is, bound with chains as a criminal. Okay? So number one, meditation that helped Paul endure in ministry under intense pressure to compromise. Helped him endure, and the basis upon which he calls Timothy to endure in ministry, and indirectly, under the Spirit's sovereignty, he calls us to endure. That's the number one way. First of all, keep remembering the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
It is to be the centerpiece of our meditation. I just take a side note of application time on this particular subject. Many of you have mentioned that this is the first time in your church experience, in your experience in a local body, where we have put this much emphasis on Christ in our singing, in our discussion, in our interaction with even the Word as we are constantly coming back to Christ. There's a very intentional reason for that. The, the intentional reason for that is that the whole of Scripture revolves around Christ. And the whole of the Christian life, if it is to be a fruitful Christian life, must also revolve around the person and work of Christ. In this case, in a very specific setting, if we're to endure in suffering and trial and persecution for the sake of the gospel, it's only going to be because we have become Christ-centered to the core. And we remember His work. You can do that in some practical ways. Number one, you can memorize Christ-centered passages from your scriptures. Whether they be Old Testament promises of the future fulfillment that you know is Christ, whether they be New Testament statements from Christ about who He is, or whether they be New Testament epistles or other writings that look back and describe the ministry of Jesus Christ, memorizing or at least becoming very familiar with portions of Scripture that can be your basis of meditation on the person of Christ will help you. Secondly, Christ-centered music will help you. It is a tool. It is a blessing from God. Every human being has been created as a musical person. Some of you less than others. Some of you more than others. And yet we appreciate music. We are to, as Christians, utilize music for the sake of encouraging our hearts and encouraging others. So Christ-centered music is critical to the meditation of your heart, as memorization of Scripture is critical. There are excellent Christ-centered songs that can be purchased, downloaded, whatever the case may be. And there are plenty of songs that will not focus your heart on Christ that will not focus your attention on the centrality of Jesus and His work. So utilize music. Utilize the memorization of Scripture. And utilize the opportunity to discuss the person and work of Christ with others as a means for meditating on those realities yourself. You need an incentive or a help in witnessing? Talk about Christ. People say, are you a Christian? Use that. Turn that, turn that corner to say, yes, I am a Christian. You know, it's funny that that word's so common, we don't even really think about what that means anymore. It means I'm a follower of Christ. And I know you probably have some understanding or some thought of who Christ was, but let me tell you who He was. Let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what the Scripture reveals Him to be and what He has accomplished in His work. Speaking to others about Christ is a means for affirming and meditating on the work of Christ as a basis for enduring faithfully in the ministry of the gospel. Okay, Those things all can be aids for us as God's people. Charles, it's looking risky tonight. We're going to try. Okay, number two, stabilizing meditation. Number two, coming from the conclusion of verse 9, this one's quite clear to us, I trust. Not only do you need to keep remembering the work of Christ, but number two, we need to keep trusting the Word of God. Paul uses awesome words. Uh, His mind is so sharp 
as he is probably pacing and speaking this, and his scribe is writing this down, his secretary is scrawling this down quickly. Here Paul speaks into the movement of the Spirit, and he talks about being bound with chains as a criminal. And then he quickly concludes, but in contrast to my chains and how restricted I am in this little nasty dungeon that I'm in, in comparison or contrast to that, the Word of God is not bound. This is a phenomenal truth that must be the meditation of our hearts if we are going to endure faithful in the ministry of the gospel. Keep remembering the work of Christ. Keep trusting the word of God. Through the gospel preaching of Paul, Paul had landed himself in prison like a common criminal, and yet he was enduring. And I can almost see the Sunday conversation with the Apostle Paul on Ministry Center. I'm not even going to try to redo ESPN. The interviewer says, Paul, why are you still preaching this message when it has obviously been the source of your suffering? In other words, if Paul was a coach, it'd be like having an interview and saying, why are you still sticking with this method when you have lost every game that you have ever played? Why are you sticking with this? Why are you staying with this? You're in prison for the umpteenth time. You've been beaten and beaten and beaten until your back is a mess of scar tissue. You've been hit with rocks in the head. Your eyes are all messed up. You're stooped over. You're nasty looking. Why are you doing this, Paul? Paul says back in simple language, I might be here sitting in prison, but the Word of God can never be bound. It's as free as the day God breathed it out. The Word of God cannot be stopped, folks. Ken read to us Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living. It's alive. The King James Word is quick. It's alive. It moves. It breathes. It has life. This is the only book that is alive and has a purpose in and of its own. It works. It's powerful. When God sends His Word out, it always accomplishes what He has sent it to do. Ephesians 6, 17 says, This is the sword of the Spirit. And no persecution, no attempt by man to stop it could ever rip the sword away from the Spirit to whom this Word belongs. This is His weapon. This is what He has created what He has set forth, and because of that, it cannot be bound. History is full of illustrations, and I read so many of them this week. History is full of illustrations, and I tried to pick a couple, and I thought, phooey, I I can't just narrow this down, of people who have tried to stop the Word of God. They've tried to stop the Gospel. The conclusion is always the same. When someone has said that, the Word of God is outlawed, and that every single copy of the Word of God must be burned, or you will burn. The result has been a number of Bibles being burned. And the secondary result has been myriads of God's people being confirmed in their confidence that the Word must go forth and it must be preserved. And the result has been a strengthening of the power of the Gospel, not a depletion in its power. 
thousands of Christians have been killed for their allegiance and their confidence in the word. And every Christian that has died, every martyr for the cause of Christ, has only further confirmed the power of the word of God. The power of the gospel. And so Paul says, here I am, I'm in this terrible situation, but my meditation is on the work of Christ, and my meditation is on the word of God. It can't be stopped. It's irrevocable. It's like the ultimate virus. Once it is set forth to do its work, it can never be stopped. It will accomplish until it is completed. If Timothy was to endure in ministry, the implication is he must focus his meditation on Christ and on the very word of Christ. Beautiful terms are used for the Lord Jesus, but none more beautiful or more artistic maybe than John 1 when it speaks of him as the word. And if we're going to make this poetic, and I'm not poetic, we are to be confident and meditating on the incarnate word, and we are to be confident and meditating on the written word. The incarnate word is our Lord Jesus himself, risen from the dead and the seed, offspring of David. And the written word is the unbound, unstoppable message and revelation from God himself. Okay, meditation that stabilizes number three. Number one, keep remembering the work of Christ. Number two, keep trusting the word of God. And number three, keep loving the salvation of the elect. Keep loving the salvation of the elect. Verse 10, therefore, because of this reality that the word of God is not bound, that Christ is, in fact, risen from the dead and the offspring of David, therefore, I endure everything, not for my own sake. Paul is not out there on his personal agenda His endurance has been based on the sake of others. And in particular, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Thirdly, now Paul discloses the affectionate meditation that prompts him forward every step of the way in his ministry of the gospel. If another beating couldn't slow him down, what was it that kept him coming back? Paul loved what he did. And he loved the people who received the message of the gospel. It is not for his own sake that Paul suffers like he suffers. Nor is it going to be for Timothy's sake that Timothy would suffer the way Timothy would suffer. Nor will it be for our own sake that we will endure in suffering if God calls us to suffer for the gospel. It won't be because we're all about our own agenda. We're all about our own lives. We're all in love with ourselves. It'll be because we have an affection that is focused and centered on those who are believing the gospel. It is for others. It is for the elect. That's a term that we just really try to avoid, right? When's the last time you said that you were going to go gather together on Sunday with the elect? I mean, you know, unless you want to argue, that's not usually a term that you would use. It's a pretty simple term. It means the chosen ones. This is just straightforward information. There's no way around it. The elect are the chosen ones that God has set apart for his gracious work of salvation. Paul was suffering for the sake or with an eye towards the eternal glory of the elect of God, those who were chosen in Christ. Now, some would argue 
that maybe this election, this grouping of the elect, is the people who have already responded to the gospel. But in fact, if we read carefully and if we read with an open understanding, it is clear that what Paul is saying is he endures everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain, like I have, in other words, that they may obtain the eternal glory that's in Christ Jesus. He wants to see the salvation of those whom God has chosen. And therefore, no matter what the suffering, no matter what the persecution, Paul keeps going. He just keeps getting back up and carrying on with this ministry. He doesn't compromise the message. He doesn't change the message. He doesn't try to adapt it so that he's more popular and so that he can just get the beatings to stop. He just keeps going. Keeps going. Because he has a heart that is affectionate and loving towards those whom God has set apart for salvation. This is the consistent testimony of the scripture that this is the work of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every, speci- with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us, elected us in him before the foundation of the world in eternity past. Why did he elect us? What was his purpose that we should be holy and blameless before him? In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved in Christ. Romans chapter 8. We love to read Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and sometimes we forget to read verse 29, which is the very follow-up, which is the conclusion of the context. Romans 8, 28, we know this verse almost by heart. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to His purpose. For, or because, this is true. Here's what's true, verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. God began the process with his sovereign choice of those who would come to him in faith, and he completes it in bringing them to glory in his presence. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. Why? So that none of us could boast in our salvation. It is of the Lord. And so Paul was driven by this awareness that there are those whom God will save. And he must take the message to them. You say, now how is it that Paul, the evangelist, the missionary, the one who took the message to the nations, how is he, this guy who is focused on the election process, these are all of his words, by the way, under the inspiration of the Spirit in Romans and in Ephesians, How is he also, this one, focused on the sovereignty of God? How is it that evangelism is coexisting with election? Because that's not supposed to happen, right? That's not supposed to be possible. I've heard people say Paul was a Calvinist. That's ridiculous. There is no such thing as Calvin's theology. Calvin was Pauline in his understanding of election. And we need to be Pauline, and if we are Pauline in our understanding, if we borrow from his words, 
and we set our mind on His affection as a standard and an imitation for us, then we're brought back to this balancing reality in Romans chapter 10. He just concluded Romans 9, which is another theme of election in God's work in the nation of Israel. And we come to chapter 10, and we see now this counterbalance. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Now only those who have been elect will call on Him. And yet, Paul says this in verse 14, And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In other words, evangelism and election are not contrast. They are not enemies. They are not opposed to one another. They are in perfect harmony with each other. If we are to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, it will be because we are confident that God is in the saving work. He is doing His work of salvation in those whom He chooses. And because we are committed to the reality that He only accomplishes that electing purpose through the preaching of the message of the gospel. And He accomplishes the preaching of the message of the gospel through utilizing His people as spokesmen for His good news. Is there attention? Is there a place where our minds run into logical problems with what we find in Scripture, no doubt. Is this a hard reality for us as sinful and uh, fallen individuals? No doubt. Is this a meditation of the Apostle Paul's heart that helped him to endure in this suffering for the Gospel? Equally, no doubt. His affection was focused on those who were the chosen ones, those whom God would save. And he was faithful to continue preaching and declaring the message of the gospel with an eye to their obtaining the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul had a very temporal suffering. He had a very right now intense, painful suffering that he went through. And he did so because he was focused and meditated, or he did so with success, rather, because he was focused and meditated on Christ, on the boundless Word of God, and on the salvation work of God in the elect. And he desired for them to obtain the salvation that Christ had set apart for them. And he utilized and saw himself as a tool in that process, an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. So if we're going to pattern our imitate or imitate the Apostle Paul in his meditation in this suffering so that we might be enduring for the sake of the gospel without compromising the message, without living in fear of men, we're going to need to set our hearts and our focus in the right place. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, which cannot be stopped, and the salvation work of God in the elect that is accomplished through the declaration of His Word through our, through our lips. What an amazing work that God does in our lives. That brings us then to the fourth meditation. And this one's maybe a stretch as far as outlining this, but the fourth meditation that stabilized Paul and gave him the endurance that was necessary and which he calls Timothy now to set his attention on is keep the eternal truth before you. And he does so with this poem or this hymn that is laid before us in verses 11 through 13. Keep remembering 
the work of Christ. Keep trusting the word of God. Keep loving the salvation of the elect. And keep eternal truth in front of you. Focus on what is real, what is true, what is eternal. And these realities are both the comfort for those who are in Christ and they are the ultimate warning for those who would not be in Christ, who would reject Christ. This is the fourth of the five the tr- saying is trustworthy statements in uh, the pastoral epistles. We've seen a whole bunch of these already. Well, we've seen three of them already. And we're going to see one more in the book of Titus. If we go back, we see the first one in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. We move from that one over to chapter 3. In verse 1 of 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office overseer, he desires a noble task. Chapter 4, verse 9 of 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And we bring now to the fourth one, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then we'll see the last one when we make it to Titus. And I'm not sure exactly when we're going to make it to Titus. But if we ever make it to Titus, we'll find that last trustworthy statement given to us there. So, in our study tonight, here is the fourth of five trustworthy statements that the Apostle Paul has given in these pastoral epistles. Each of these statements is reciting an axiomatic. Well, that's a ridiculous word to have in my notes, axiomatic. Um, that was not the word that came to my mind, that much I can guarantee you, okay? That means that I was reading somewhere or reading several places that the word axiomatic had come up, and so then my brain just popped axiomatic in, and that's what we wrote down. It recites a well-known truth. How about that? That's a little better than axiomatic. All right. Every time you see the Apostle Paul saying the saying is trustworthy, all he's doing is propping up what is a common theme in the church. This is kind of a mantra. This is, I, I would think, like the best case scenario for Christian bumper stickers. All right. These are phrases that the church knew. They said these things. These were common themes that they would say to each other. And the Apostle Paul references them in different cases for different for different uh, purposes, and yet they're all the same in that essence. Each of them is a well-known statement within the body of Christ. These might be chariot stickers that the church would put to help them remember what is true. This is assumed by most people to be a hymn, or at least a common poem in the early church that they would recite together, and it is also understood that we may not have the entirety of this hymn or this poem, This might be just a portion that the Apostle Paul used for this encouragement to young Timothy to endure in suffering. Each of these statements that you see here, each of these if statements, is a first-class conditional statement. And that's important. Why? That's a good question. It is a first-class conditional statement, which means that in the, uh, the language in which this was written originally, 
Each of these statements is an argument assuming the reality of the if statement. All right? So there are second-class conditional statements, which are statements arguing with the assumption that it's not true. All right? So you could read these this way. If we have died with him, and we have, we will also live with him. If we endure with, if we endure, and for the sake of argument, we have, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, and for the sake of argument, we have, he will deny us. If we are faithless, and for the sake of argument, it's true, he remains faithful. In other words, it's the opposite of saying, if we have died with him, and we're not going to do that, then we'll also live with him. Okay, there's two ways of arguing, and the Greek language can use two different words just to set up that argument. And so each of these if statements is assuming the reality for the sake of argument. Okay, so when you read these, these are actual valid opportunities for individuals. These are not hypotheticals that won't happen. These are true statements that do happen and have happened for the history of of the church. Okay? Each of them is assuming the reality. Now the first two are to be an encouragement to us. The first two stanzas, if you will, are encouragement to us. The last two are warnings for us. The first two, if we have died with him, we also will live with him. This is focusing on the reward of endurance. Alright? So if one were to die and with Christ or in him Really, I believe the best understanding of this is martyrdom. Paul says if we die with him, that is, if we suffer to the point of death, we will live. Uh, those who die for Christ, with Christ, in Christ, those who die in the fellowship of the suffering of the Lord himself will also live with him. That's why he said he's risen. He's the risen Lord. That is an immense encouragement. That should be the meditation of eternal truth on the, on the heart of the faithful servant who is enduring suffering. The second stanza, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure to the end, right now, folks, understand this truth. If you press on by God's grace, bearing fruit and enduring in faith, you will reign with Christ for eternity. That's a promise. That's eternal truth. That will not be done away. You will reign with Christ. Try to make this more real. If you endure, in spite of the fact that the American government takes away all of your possessions, they kill your kids. They take you to some concentration camp somewhere and force labor upon you, and eventually they just chain you to a wall and throw scraps of meat to you, and you press on in faith and in confidence that the gospel is true, that Christ is who he said he is, that the word of God is still doing its work, and you are faithful, and you endure, you're going to reign with Christ. And all of your temporal suffering will be set aside for the glorious reward of our heavenly reign with Christ. These are to be two truths that fortify us. And now we end with these two negatives. Here are the two warnings for us. Second part of verse 12, we see stanza number three. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 33, Jesus says that the one who denies him before the Father, he'll deny before the Father. The reality here is a warning that those whose lives are patterned in a denial, a rejection, an apostasy,
from Christ. A moving away, a falling away from the truth. And the idea here is to deny Him in such a way as to have known Him and to say it is not true. I reject Jesus Christ if we reject Him, if we deny Him. When the judgment day comes, He will also deny us. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22. It's an important verse. You don't need to turn there, but listen as I read it. John says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In the same context, John says that those who went out from us, that is, they apostatized, they denied, they rejected Christ, they went out from us because they were not of us. Though they had superficially come to accept some truths about Jesus Christ, ultimately they denied Him with their existence. And their end will be their denial at the judgment. This is Matthew 7. Those who had done things externally while denying the reality of Christ internally will be set apart for punishment as those whom God has never known. It's a sobering thought. It brings to us a very familiar question. What about Peter? What about Peter? Didn't he deny Christ? Yes, Peter denied Christ, and yet the emphasis here is the difference between apostasy and a moment of denial. Folks, you have denied Christ probably today with your life and your thinking and your attitude and your actions. We have lived in such a way this week at different points in time as to say Christ isn't who he claimed to be. God is not who he says he is. The word of God is not true. The gospel is not taking effect. That is what worldly living is. That is what sin is. And yet this person, the one who has denied Christ, those who deny him as their pattern, this is their life, this is their heart, versus the moment of denial, and in Peter's sad case, the threefold moment of denial. And yet we see in John 21, after Matthew 26, in Peter's denial, in John 21, the Lord Jesus comes and restores Peter himself. Because Peter was not a denier of Christ, he was faithful to the end. And yet in the moment, he failed Christ and denied the reality of his association with the Lord. Here's the grand warning. There are two grand promises. If you die in Christ, you'll live with Christ. And if you endure faithful, you will reign. And now here are the the twofold warning. If you deny him, you'll be denied. It's a promise. And the second warning falls right on the heels of that. If we are faithless, if the faith tank is on empty... There's nothing there. It's just externalism. It's just a shell. It's just an act. It's just hypocrisy. And we're faithless. Don't you be deceived. God will always be faithful. He will press on. He will be faithful to what He has said. This is the ultimate warning to false believers. John Mack says, Just as Christ will never renege on His promise to save those who trust Him. He will also never renege on His promise to condemn those who do not trust Him. So if you were hoping that though you haven't the slightest bit of faith, that somehow you were going to get by, understand with this eternal truth before you, that those who are faithless will face the faithful judgment 
of God. It's a twofold warning on the heels of a twofold encouragement. And it is to be the basis, or another layer, if you will, of meditation for the believer who is suffering to continue to press on and to be faithful in their ministry of the gospel. Why? Well, because of the blessing that will come for the endurance, the blessing that will come to the one who presses on, and for the unbelievable reality for those who do not. Two sides of the same coin to press us forward in our pursuit of faithfulness in ministry. The final phrase there at the end of verse 13, for he cannot deny himself, is rightly set apart in the ESV. You'll see it under the verse. That's to help you understand that that's not a part of the poem. That's Paul's commentary on the poem. That's Paul's explanation of that last phrase. God will always, always remain faithful to himself. It is counterintuitive for God to in any way move away from his own character. It is impossible for him to deny himself. It cannot happen. And in judgment, it will not happen. He will be a faithful judge. For those who are faithless, they will face a fearful, faithful judge. And for those who endure, they will, they will receive a blessing that comes from the hand of a loving and a kind, faithful Father in heaven. Okay? So the meditation of the heart and mind of the minister is crucial if there will be an enduring testimony for the sake of the gospel. And this is true of our church as well. This is the testimony that must be on our lips, that we are focusing our meditation on the work of Christ, and we are trusting the Word of God, and we are loving those who, are, who God is saving, and we are keeping eternal truth in front of our faces. It is the confidence in the promises of God to reward the faithful that press us on in faithfulness to Christ. And it is the confidence in the promise of God to punish those who reject Him that should drive us to warn others of their impending doom and judgment. This should be a motivation for the continuing, enduring, sustained ministry of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and forgiveness for sinners. May we be found faithful to the end for the cause of Christ in the power of the Word, with an eye toward the elect, and a meditation on the truth of God's ever-faithfulness.